If you use the internet on a daily basis, and chances are you do, you probably don't put much thought into cybersecurity. You know, your network connections, the pages you visit, the files you download. You should be thinking about these all the time. Welcome to And Security for All. Your host is Kim Hakem. We're here to help you understand, in general terms, how and why your cybersecurity should be kept in check. Now, here is Kim Hakem. I am not Kim Hakem. So, um, yeah, my name's Steve Winterfeld. I'm the advisory CSO for Akamai. Uh, one of the things I get to do is some thought leadership. Kim and I have partnered quite a few times. And today, uh, she is out. Uh, she is on the road with some of her shows. So I'm stepping in to kind of lead today's discussion. And with me today is Sean Flynn. And hey, so, uh, hey, so Sean, I'll turn it over to you. Okay. Uh, yeah, real quick. Uh, Sean Flynn, Director of Security Technology at uh, Akamai. Um, Steve, we've, we've done this kind of dance a little bit uh, uh, quite a few times last year. We're turning the tables a little bit this time uh, where I'm going to actually grill you <laughs> instead of the other way around. Uh, and the I reason like for that, that, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and, and the reason for that is because this is something, this is a topic that you get very excited about and, and, and you've got a lot more experience with. So, you know, the topic that we're going to cover is really all around compliance and how it affects um, cybersecurity, especially in 2024. So in 2024, there's there's a lot of changes. There's a lot of uh, changes to things like uh, key frameworks and NIST. Um, which is adding governance and incident response. There are some changes to uh, PCI, which is the credit card compliance, um, which is changing some rules. Um, we're seeing some new laws in resiliency and AI uh, coming out of the uh, European Union, as well as some changes to things like disclosure timelines. And all of these can impact uh, a cybersecurity program, or even a business model, and in some instances, even you know the the architecture of how you're doing the business. So, Steve, to kind of start things off and make sure everybody's on the same page, we're going to be talking a lot about things like best practices, standards, regulations, and laws. Can you talk a little bit about how you know what's what's the difference between that terminology and and, and what do they mean? Yeah, and so it's interesting. Throughout my career, I've had both operational responsibilities building and running security operation centers, but also, you know, kind of compliance uh, requirements. I've worked in finance. I've, I've helped uh, energy companies. Uh, I've worked in retail. And, and all of these have people that are coming in and making sure you meet some of these. So let's kind of break this out. The first is obviously best practices and that could be something like uh, OWASP, which makes recommendations or, you know, here at Akamai, we have uh, DDoS protection. We have web application firewall protection. And, and those, we may see one customer do something great and, and encourage all our customers to move to that best practice. So, you know, it's not something you're required to do. It's something that you would do because you want to do the right thing for your employees and your customers. Um, the next would be kind of a standard. Uh, payment card industry, PCI is a standard. Um, there are others that, you know, the, the energy industry has a standard that, and these are generally run by an industry organization and are, are, are not required by law, but are encouraged by an industry. So, 
Some of these may still have fines, may still have consequences, but it's not necessarily run by a government agency. And then you do have regulations and you have laws and, and regulations are written to, to govern and laws are, are written a little bit more broadly. So let's take HIPAA, for example. If you go read the legislation for HIPAA, um, which is the healthcare law, there's no way you could just read that and turn around and implement it. So a group came together and said, okay, here's what the law says. And to implement this paragraph, we would use this technology, this security control. And they came up with high trust, which is a standard by which you almost have a checklist of how to comply with the law. And so, you know, sometimes this is, is a little confusing, but all of this generally we, we throw under our risk and compliance committee for larger companies, uh, your compliance policy if you're a smaller company to make sure we're doing the right thing. Right. So as a security professional, why would someone like myself care about compliance? What does it do for me? So I'm probably one of the few people that gets excited about this topic. Um, and, and honestly, it's because I'm a big believer in processes. You know, we have that, that people, processes, and technology, and that framework is, is kind of how we build the different aspects of a security program. And I tend to emphasize the processes. I want something repeatable. Sean, you're amazing, but when you leave, I don't want everything you do to fall apart. I want processes in place so when you leave, the company continues to operate and, and there's no gap, there's no tripping up. And so that's why I've always been a big advocate of, of that process section, which ties in closely to this. And so why should I care? I've got internal auditors that are gonna come. And I want to be able to present artifacts that show I'm compliant with our policies and procedures. If I'm in, again, a heavily regulated industry, finance, healthcare, anything that, that there's international and national standards, then I want to be able to say, yes, I'm compliant. And then I'm also worried about, you know, post-breach issues. So if I have a, a big data breach and there's a class action lawsuit, that they're gonna come in and they're gonna say, were you compliant with the basic regulations? So if I lost a bunch of credit cards, but I'm PCI compliant, I'm in a better situation to defend myself during a class action lawsuit. If they came in and they said, well, you didn't follow a best practice, I'm, you know, I may be weaker, but I'm not, you know, gonna come into those two key words, due care and due diligence. I'm not gonna be found negligent. Yeah, and, and I completely agree that you are probably one of the few people I know that gets excited about compliance. Um, but it's definitely important and it keeps us on the right side of things, I think, overall. Um, so it's definitely uh, something that, and I also see it as, as something that helps push us to be better secured in the long run. Um, and, and, you know, if anybody's heard you talk, 
Um, they, they know that you're a fan of frameworks. Um, and I tease you about that, but I also agree. Um, I think frameworks are a great way to kind of keep you organized and kind of draw out a plan on how you are going to operationalize things. Um, and one of the ones that you're a very big fan of is NIST, and they're coming out with a, a 2.0 framework. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, what's going on with the NIST 2.0 uh, cybersecurity framework? Yeah, and so obviously I have some car, scar tissue around, uh, you know, some of this because if you're if you're working for a major bank, and I was a CSO for Nordstrom Bank, the the federal auditors will come in, and their audit standard uh, is based on NIST. Uh, ultimately, everything tracks back to NIST, and you'll find a lot of standards are going to track back to some kind of framework. And so NIST is, is a great one that, you know, it, it has a bunch of different standards and they're updating it in the next year to say, you know, here's version 2.0. Um, and for that cybersecurity framework, it, it has some functions and the functions are kind of an incident response cycle. So you have identify, protect, detect, respond and recover. And so that's a natural, evolution of a process you know you get hit by an attack you discover you remediate it you have lessons learned you take those lessons learned and you and improve your you know how do you identify how you protect how you detect and they've added a sixth function and this sixth function is governance and within governance that may change us may force us to change our our policies and so now we're going to have to say, what is an organizational context of how we govern? What is risk management and how do we do risk management? You know, and um, what is our supply chain risk management? What are our roles and responsibilities? Do we have policies, processes, and procedures? And I think of those as nested documentation. And then what do we do for oversight? And so while overall, the NIST framework is, is changing. It's becoming more continuous, more risk-based. Um, those are all good things. But from a, a building a program, managing a program, and on the compliance side, I think it's important for us to sit down and say, this new function with this six capabilities, we probably address this. Good security is not compliant. Com Good programs are compliant as a byproduct. So again, I don't encourage anybody to go build towards a compliance framework. You want to build a great program and then be able to prove that it's compliant. And one of the things we have to prove, though, is, is that it is. And so again, I'm a huge fan of plagiarism when it comes to passing audits. I like to go into the NIST and pull that language out and put it in my policies so that when the auditors come through, you are in good shape. Yeah, being in the trenches of, of, of uh, insecurity where you come into a new position or, um, or, or a new team, I'm definitely one of the ones that would immediately you know, kind of grumble because there's no documentation or whether you've got disaster recovery documentation that's a little outdated or you've, you don't have things written down and when someone leaves, there's that, that gap you were talking about. 
Um, and then I'm also guilty of once I was in that team, uh, not writing down all those things I should be because we're constantly putting out fires. So we're running from one fire to another fire. So it's always difficult. So I, I, from what I'm hearing from you, it sounds like there's going to be kind of more of a nudge to make sure that the the operationalizing and, and policies and, and the documentation that is going to be good for things like disaster recovery or emergencies, um, that that's going to be up to date uh, or that's going to be encouraged to be up to date. Is that accurate? A little bit more formal. I think it's always been there, but now there are specific frameworks. And again, whenever you get into, you know, if, if you're if you're looking at a checklist of an auditor coming in with 247 different items, then you know you have to to make sure your artifacts are able to answer all of those. And again, this is an opportunity for us to get ahead and say, if an external auditor comes in from the government, especially, they're probably basing it on NIST, and they're likely to ask questions around those six subfunctions. Yeah. Yep. So one of the compliances that I know you and I deal with all the time is, or one of the standards is, uh, is, is PCI compliance, right? It's, uh, in, you know, when we deal with retail, we deal with finance, pretty much anybody who's dealing with credit card information has to be uh, PCI compliant. And, and in 2024, there's gonna be a new uh, DSS uh, for PCI. So PCI uh, DSS version 4.0 uh, is coming out. Uh, can you talk about, you know, kind of what's driving that as well as kind of what are the changes to that? So a lot of it is based on, you know, a desire to to move to risk-based, to be more adaptable because one checklist doesn't necessarily meet every business model. And other parts of it are truly driven by, you know, threats and changes to the threat landscape. And so an example is, uh, you know, a Three, four years ago, most of us weren't really focused on our JavaScript environment. And it, it was part of our ecosystem, but we didn't have a ton of security controls around it. And then the criminal group Magecart came in and all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're having data breaches from this environment. And so, you know, in this JavaScript environment, you have IT putting out functional stuff. Uh, you have marketing putting in analytical stuff. You may have the, the finance putting in a payment card capability. Um, so there's this third party payment cards. Uh, you know, marketing could be pulling individual, uh, you know, specific addresses or emails and marketing to them. And so all of this was at risk. And we when Magecart came in and started, let's say, stealing credit cards, Suddenly, we needed to look at this. And there are, you know, industries that, you know, let's say commerce and retail, day one, they were getting it. But even stuff like finance, which probably doesn't, most of them don't have as a dynamic one, you know, a recent study was showing that 16% of, of their critical or, or sensitive data was in this kind of an environment. So it's a smaller environment, but all of a sudden it's under PCI. And, and the challenge here is when you see these coming out, you know, how do I get a control into the, the JavaScript environment? How can I look for vulnerabilities? How can I detect malicious activities? How can I mitigate malicious activities real time? And so that's where, you know, there's a time lag for most people. It takes a while to either 
you know, bring in a vendor to do that or to be able to, to change your architecture to protect against that. Yeah, the I think the, the stats that I saw recently coming from us is that we saw about 40% of all JavaScript that um, that's coming out of most of our customers is third party, meaning it's it's not something they, they directly control. They've got business partners and, and relationships with other companies and, and they're pulling those JavaScripts. In retail, it's actually up to 50% because they're just more heavy on it. And what Magecart did was, was interesting um, because you know, Magecart looked at the, the the target. And let's say I think you, you mentioned finance, so I'll use a bank. And they might look at a target like a bank and say, okay, I, I'm trying to attack it, but you know, they've done their due diligence, they're protected. I can't really get into the application to grab credit card information or or username and password, things like that. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna see who are their business partners. And I'm gonna go ahead and see if one of those business partners actually has less security than than they do. And this really isn't anything new. We've seen this in, in other examples, but it's interesting as far as, you know, it's just, it hasn't been done before. So for them to go out and attack a business partner so that they can hack the third party script to add an attack payload so that when you're bringing up that bank's application, there's this script now grabbing, let's say you're using a password, sending it to another server. Um, that was basically exposing an area that nobody was really actively watching, which is what's going on at the browser in real time. And um, it's also very difficult to see. So it's not something that, it's not as popular as ransomware and some other attacks that we typically hear in the news all the time. But once somebody is able to do it, um, you know, Magecart and some of those customers that they, or some of those companies that they attacked, they were doing it for, you know, at times, I think it was like eight or nine months before they were discovered. So it is definitely um, trying to fill an area that is definitely vulnerable and, and could have some serious ramifications. So like PCI is now saying, hey, it's your application. You need to be responsible for whatever's running on it or whatever's running during it that you're calling. And um, I definitely think that's a good move. And, uh, and, and uh, it's an area that I think we're definitely vulnerable in. Yeah, and we're seeing more and more, you know, you're talking about the third-party scripts. We're seeing more and more emphasis and questions out of our auditors, of our supply chain, of our third parties, of our SaaS. And and all of this is goes back to that governance function of, you know, if, if you bring in a third party, you know, are you responsible for monitoring? Do they have vulnerabilities? Are you able to scan and see, does the scripts in your environment have a vulnerability? Um, are, is that third party responsible to tell you or notify you if they have a security finding, if they have a data loss, if they have a breach? Are you going to be notified when the public is notified? Are you going to be notified during the investigation? Can you ask for things like, you know, do you have the legal right to ask for results of their pen test? Um, all of those things are becoming more and more important and part of our compliance program. And we have to partner, you know, this is really a team event because we have to partner with vendor management to make sure all that stuff is happening. Yeah. Um, one of the things that uh, is kind of coming out uh, this year are we're starting to see new laws from uh, the EU or the European Union. And obviously if, if you have, if you're a global company and you have, you have, uh, customers in the EU, then that's definitely gonna directly affect you. But let me ask you, 
are any of these laws also going to affect, like, is there something if, if I'm, if I'm working in a company that doesn't have, uh, uh, customers in the, in the EU, should I be paying attention to these laws? So I think you should, because they are a precursor. If you see, you know, the, they had laws coming out on privacy in Europe. Um, now almost every nation has privacy laws within the United States. We don't have a national privacy law, but almost all of the states have implemented privacy laws. And so, you know, if we take that example and say, okay, we see a law about resiliency coming out of the EU, then you're going to see, you know, our, our leading states, California, Texas, some others that, that tend to be the first coming out and saying, okay, here's a law on resiliency that you have to be compliant with. And so uh, as, as somebody who, you know, runs a program and has to be compliant with every state and multiple nations, it, it can be complex, which is why, again, I say, you know, build a compliant program and then have the artifacts go matrix over to all those different regulations and compliance checklists. But ultimately, it's a question, you know, you see resiliency coming out. Do we have a policy or do we have a thought? Uh, all of this is is something to, to look towards and be prepared. Yeah, yeah. And, and you, it, it actually goes beyond even the U.S., right? So it, came, it started with European Union. We're starting to see it in the U.S., but, you know, we're seeing other countries that are that aren't affiliated with the European Union that are also doing this. So there's definitely a domino effect globally um, as far as, um, you know, what they do in the EU tends to kind of spread across the globe. So question on, on, on the EU, um, <laughs> other than an explorer, <laughs> I don't know why I said that, what is DORA? And, and I will tell you, if you go Google DORA, you will get the explorer before you get the act. So... <laughs> The, there is a, a law coming into place, which is called the Digital Operational Resiliency Act. And this is an act that says for our critical infrastructure, again, I'll use banking as an example, how are you resilient? And this is interesting because this law is also going to say, well, your critical capability and you have critical suppliers. So you know, for, for this critical supplier, how are they resilient? And so we tend to think of resiliency, at least I originally did, is, you know, thinking of it like business continuity or disaster recovery. But these aren't, you know, potential disasters. In cyber, we're in an active conflict. Every day we have threats attacking us. And so we have a thinking, aggressive adversary. And so as we think through resilience, you know, how are we able to make sure that everybody has access to their wealth all the time? And that's where we're seeing this act come into place. You know, again, there was a, a line in GDPR, which is privacy regulation out of, out of Europe, about resiliency. There's little mentions of these kind of things in other laws, but now it is going to be an act and a law in and of itself that we're going to have audits on. And so, again, this is a you know, my prime example of something coming out of Europe that it's we have an opportunity now to get ahead of and be proactive in thinking about how to look at this. Yeah, I think 
the more that we rely on on applications and things, and, I'm, and, I, and of course I travel, so I'm thinking of the, the app that I use for uh, for my flights, right? Um, you know, somebody might think resiliency is like, yeah, we were down for 20 minutes, but that wasn't a big deal. You know, disaster recovery is to make sure that we're, we're not down for days. But if I'm trying to board a flight and within that 20 minutes that they're down, um, that's definitely going to impact me negatively and, 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 and in a sense ruin my day if I'm not able to get the, the pass um, if, if I'm doing it that way. So it's definitely, you're starting to see a lot more reliance on, you know, people need access to their financial information or be able to do transactions. They need access to applications more and more. It makes sense that that's starting to become or, or starting to morph into more of a real-time uh, resiliency versus, you know, like a disaster recovery type scenario. Um, one of the other things that I'm starting to see a little bit of is in, um, well, not actually a lot, um, uh, is, is data sovereignty and uh, residency as, and then also localization of data. So can you talk a little bit about um, what we're seeing there and some of the changes there? So yeah, data sovereignty, I think of as, you know, what laws apply to it? Where do those laws apply? Who's able to leverage, take advantage, and, and use the data? Um, residency localization is more about, you know, German citizens' data should only be in servers or in the cloud within the geographic region of Germany. And so part of the challenge here is if you have German data in another country's servers, you know, how do you apply the sovereignty? How do you how do you audit? How do you inspect? And so you've seen this move to the only way to, to ensure that your privacy regulations are done is kind of a, a drive to make sure that it's in a geographic region you control because our laws apply to geography and, and cyber obviously doesn't. So I think that's kind of where you see this. Um, most of this is driven by privacy uh, and, and you're just seeing, you know, this is a requirement for some to actually re-architect. You know, if, if I've, I've got to keep the, the data in a certain region and I'm an international company, then that changes my architecture. Um, as a researcher, it also changes my ability to do research. If I'm looking for global trends, how do I pull data that has to stay in Germany into the global trends? You know, if I anonymize it, is it still valuable? There's a lot of challenges and a lot of changes coming out of this. Yeah, and I think there's some also nuances as to what, you know, certain people consider personal private, private data versus others. And I think IP is definitely one that, different, different, uh, there's different thoughts and, and opinions on. Um, and it's definitely, I, I agree. I think it's going it to possibly, we've got a lot of cloud companies and I think, you know, the trend for, for organizations is to start using cloud versus um, more on-prem, especially in security. Um, and, and these cloud organizations are going to have to start to architect to be able to, to, uh, to keep data within, like you said, resident to, to that country or that region, depending on what the laws are there. Um, you know, another thing that, that we're seeing quite a lot of talk on is, is AI. And if you've ever been to a security event like RSA or Black Hat, every vendor talks about AI. And for the most part, 
a lot of that was machine learning. And so when I think of like security solutions and how they implement AI, it's really machine learning. And um, we don't typically have a ton of questions from, from companies about how we handle machine learning. But I feel like 2023 changed dramatically with the introduction of what we call generative, generative AI or, or what, think of it as like your chat GPT. Um, and I think it's because chat GPT exposed generative AI to so many people so that they can see what, um, what can be done with AI, uh, especially that kind of AI. And I've never seen uh, up until now, and I've been in, in security for almost 20 years, such a rush to adopt generative AI into either marketing or sales or efficiency as I'm seeing in 2023. Please tell me there is something that uh, when it comes to compliance, that's going to help um, when it comes to AI. So again, I mean, there is a big move towards AI and a lot of it is around trying to make sure that, that we're doing the right thing. So. Some of the, the discussions are around general AI. And general AI is a capability to make, you know, human-like thought leaps, decisions like a human would. You know, large language models are designed, generative AI is designed to make the next most likely word. And so it's great at, at conversations, at giving you a description. You know, it can almost write a book for you. Um, you know, machine learning is is algorithm based, and it's designed to say, you know, we use it in in helping predict the attacks. Mm -hmm. You know, how attacks may migrate and change, or detecting that this is a bot versus a human. And so, the concern is when you're using AI, either one of these, to make decisions on who gets a loan, who gets into school. Um, and, and that's where, you know, we're seeing a law come out of the EU that says AI should be safe, transparent, traceable, non-discriminatory, and environmentally friendly. AI systems should be overseen by people rather than automation to prevent harmful outcomes. So there's a challenge here because if, if you don't design something to be auditable, to explain why it made a decision, it won't. You can't go in to some of these, you know, unsupervised learning or neural net machine learning techniques or generative AI. And now we're seeing, you know, with generative AI, what's called hallucinations. Uh, and I've just seen articles on lazy generative AI um, where, you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, I've written a book on cyber warfare. So I went into one of the generative AIs and I said, um, you know, tell me about Steve Winterfeld, the author. And it came back and said, Steve Winterfeld is an author and it listed a book. And the book was around pen testing, which I've done in my career and I've done talks on, but I've never written a book on. So it did not give you the book I'd written. It made up a book that I could have written, the next most likely word. And so you know, the the goal here is if we're depending on these, we need them to be reliable. We need them to be auditable. We need them to not be discriminatory. Again, a famous example, um, an HR AI system was saying, 
women who anybody who graduated from an all girls school shouldn't be hired because statistically that had been the norm for the company. They did a poor job of hiring women. It took that bit of data and it made it a rule. If you couldn't audit that and didn't know it, you wouldn't know why women were getting rejected. So changing gears a little bit from the, from EU we also see President Biden has published a, an executive order on safe and secure, trustworthy artificial intelligence. We've seen DHS and uh, the CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency under DHS, are issuing plans to deal with, uh, you know, aggressive AI and guidelines on how to do this safely. So. We're seeing one law and a lot of guidance around AI right now. Yeah, you listed a lot of good reasons why we need to be careful with AI. None of them had to do with Skynet, um, which is good. Uh, but, uh, and, and, and I've definitely read articles where, you know, the programmers or the, the, the people who engineered the framers couldn't understand how AI ended up coming up with the answer that they came up with, which is, little scary if, like you said, there's not a way to be able to uh, kind of turn on debugging so that you can see that the how the, it came to a conclusion. I also remember saying, reading an article recently, or maybe it was about six months ago, where, you know, if you've got an AI, like a generative AI that's trying to learn about lots of different things, but you found it was kind of weak in, let's say, math. So what you do is you start to give it a lot of math data so that it kind of balances it out, right. that they were able to show that when they did that, it actually got weaker in other areas. So, you know, when I think of things like that, I'm thinking, well, okay, so that, so there are some flaws there that obviously from a security standpoint, it sounds like I could take advantage of. Poisoning's one, uh, and there's different ways to do that. So it's, it's definitely, um, I'm, I'm glad to hear that we're starting to implement some sort of uh, policies to start to get visibility into uh, responsible AI. And this kind of goes to exactly what you're saying. I, a lot of my peers, as I'm talking to other CISOs, are looking, say, where might I implement? You know, I've been, and you said this, we've been implementing machine learning for a while for generative or large language models. Where could I use it? I yeah. could use it in the security operations center. I could use it in the call center. I could use it in different places. Um, hackers are thinking about using it in social engineering and deep fakes and, and audio fakes. And, and so as we look at both the yin and the yang of, of all of this, what I'm saying is I think under the compliance program, not the operations program, we also need to look at okay, I'm going to implement it in the SOC. Okay, if I see regulation coming in the future that says it has to be auditable, then I want to do that. And clearly we're having discussions about, you know, if you implement it, it should be private, not public. And and there, there is an OWASP top 10 for security concerns around large language models that I want to implement those security protections. But, but on the compliance side, I want to look at how am I going to be able to prove that what I'm using meets these future compliance inbound requirements? And just show that you're doing due diligence to make sure, like you said, that the, with the example of hiring women, like that is definitely something that you want to make sure you're protecting against so that you don't accidentally make that policy when, um, 
when when that could obviously go into you know court. Yeah, and, we all want to do the right thing. So how absolutely. do we do that? Yep. You know, w one of the biggest attack vectors that we've got going on right now is is in focusing on APIs. Uh, if you look at 2022, it was one of the most common attack vectors that led to data breaches, and we saw quite a number of companies that were with uh, things like customer. Uh, records were completely scraped based off of uh, abusing, let's say, the, the, the way the API was used. Um, is there compliance now to, to kind of address that? Are we seeing anything there? So let's go back up to those compliance terms we talked about earlier. You know, kind of that spectrum of best practices, standards, and laws. We're seeing very little on that that far end of laws. I think Chile might have a law coming up on, on APIs. We're seeing some stuff come out of standards and regulations like um, GDPR, the privacy regulation, general data protection regulation in Europe has implications for API, may have a line in there. We have best practices like the OWASP top 10 for APIs. Um, we have some industry-specific regulations, uh, open banking, PTSD, Payment Services Directive 2, um, PDS2, uh, you know, is requiring APIs. PCI 4.0 calls out APIs. Um, the American National Standards Institute calls it out. I know the petroleum regulations are, are specifically addressing APIs. Um, we also see some standards that are coming out like HIPAA. You know, HIPAA has, uh, healthcare regulation has requirement for transparency. A lot of that transparency is going to be done through APIs. If you're trying to be ISO or NIST compliant, there's going to be stuff there. Although interestingly on the NIST side, NIST has published, you know, really specific documentation around things like micro-segmentation or zero trust, um, but they haven't published anything yet on API. So I think most of it is towards the, the standards and best practices right now. But again, those are a great place to start because if you build a program that is great, it will be compliant as a byproduct. And so some of those best practices are probably the place to focus. Yeah, and the way that we see how fast compliance moves, I, I kind of feel like probably the next round, you know, it's for like for PCI, probably the next version of PCI will probably see more focus on APIs. And, you know, uh, you know, the next round of, of some of these programs will start to see more focus on security. Um, just because this really blew up within what the last three, four or five years as being a major issue. Well, I mean, ideally, I would love us to see it get it under control before regulators felt like they had to come in and and issue guidance. Yeah. Um, you know, so we we have a lot of focus on this. Uh, I know that, you know, we've put out reports recently on, you know, the amount of abuse uh, from APIs, rogue APIs, how to discover them. And all this is because we're in a transformation phase. You know, it is an example of, of back when we were at Nordstrom and we tried to create a relationship to sell through a, a third party uh, Pinterest, we had to do all that manually. 
and it was huge and it wasn't a great return on investment. And if they changed something, we had to manually fix it. If we changed something on our side, it could break it and we'd have to troubleshoot and figure it out. And and so along come APIs, which makes all this interaction, you know, much more friendly, much more practical. And so we're moving to it very fast. But when we move fast, we tend to suffer because quality may not be integrated up front. Um, you know, security isn't integrated up front. And we all know that old saying, you know, security bolted on afterwards is more expensive and less effective. But it is that transformation now. And so whenever we have that, when we move to a new process, when we move to new architecture, you know, and we move from on-prem to the cloud. We have that security kind of lag until we kind of institutionalize it and build those guardrails. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Um, another common attack that I think we've all heard quite a bit about in the last several years is ransomware. Um, when it comes to ransomware, has there been any any uh, updates or any any changes or anything new as far as compliance around you know ransomware attacks? So I think you know we talked earlier and you're you're kind of kicking us off about notification changes, and there's been a lot of changes um, everywhere about notification requirements, when and how, and and in fact one just crazy story is. The hacker grouper Black Cat attacked a company, got in, um, you know, made a ransomware demand, and then they filed a complaint with the SEC, uh, the federal agency, and saying that that company hadn't complied with the notification laws. And so I'm just amazed um, at the at the way they'll push. To, to get somebody to pay the ransom, you know, phase one was, was get them to pay. Phase two was steal data and then notify the, the people whose data was stolen to go tell the vendor, hey, tell them to pay or we're going to release yours. And now they're telling the government regulatory agency, hey, they didn't notify you in time. It's just so crazy to me. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a lot of... Um... We, I mean, we've seen that. It doesn't when you look back at it, you're like, okay, that actually makes sense because it's just applying pressure, and that's really what ransomware is all about. I mean, we've seen them use uh, distributed denial service attacks. We've seen them use um, web attacks. We've seen them use lots of different threats to try to force a company to to, to pay. Um, it, but you do realize when you think about like, wow, you really went to the regular, you know, you went to the SEC. That takes guts. I mean, that's just really just a gutsy move. It's just not cricket, just not cricket. Um, <laughs> and so the other part of this is on the payment side. And so, um, you know, we've seen a couple laws come out. North Carolina and Florida broke, I think, year before last, broke laws or, or issued laws uh, saying that, you know, anybody governed or run by the state could not pay a ransomware. Uh and so, you know, we're seeing this move um, where cyber insurance is getting involved, regulators are getting involved. They want to know if you've paid, when you paid, what you paid. 
Um, we've seen the FBI get involved in trying to to claw back those payments after the the de-encryption key was done. But payments is probably the one area within it. And so, you know, when I'm running my incident response program, I really look at three things. What to do if I lose data? What to do if I lose my operational capacity? And what to do if a third party loses my data? And so that center one is really there are two ways you're gonna lose access. A denial of service attack, usually short term, Right. or encryption phase of ransomware, potentially long-term. Five, 10 years ago, I could have counted on one hand the number of companies that went out of business because of a cyber attack. Now, we, you know, just last year, we had another company go out of business, you know, 70 employees gone because they couldn't recover in time from a ransomware attack. And so... The number of companies that have had material impact or gone out of business is much higher. And really, there are two things driving this. Business email compromise. Somebody comes into a company and convinces you to, to send your payroll to a different organization than you normally do. Um, and, and when you send it over there or somebody comes in and says, hey, you know, the CEO and I are involved in a mergers and acquisition. I need you to, to email them $15 million. Don't talk to anybody about this. It's under confidentiality, um, you know, requirements. And then you don't have the money to pay your payroll and you go out of business. So business email compromises having material impact in ransomware. And so in these two cases, I really think it's important to say now, before you're in crisis, will we pay? And if we pay, are we going to have an expert? You know, I might bring in expert forensics. I might bring in expert media relationships. Here's another where if, if I'm going to pay a ransomware, do I want to bring in a professional ransomware broker to give me a better chance of actually getting the decryption keys? And so... As we're thinking through this, then think about what are the implications? Who do I have to notify? What if I'm in a state or a geographic area, you know, are there are there going to be legal ramifications from paying? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's sometimes it, it might if you're not in in that uh, situation, it might seem very clear, you know, what the what your decisions going to be, but but there's actually quite a lot of factors in there. And I'm very curious to see how that's going to play out as far as laws and and, and what is that going to do as far as uh, how is it going to push attackers and, and are they going to get around it? How are they going to get around it? How are they going to morph? Uh, but yeah, I agree with you. It's definitely something that um, should be done or should be you know determined ahead of time. And, and every company is different and they have to kind of leverage and figure it all out as far as what makes the right uh, decision for them. Yeah. And like I said, the, the key here is to have a plan and follow a plan. We, you talked about it earlier. I, I love processes. Um, and this is where process is going to pay off. You know, it's going to prevent you from making a mistake. It's going to prevent you from doing something that in a class action lawsuit, you're, you're going to have to say, why didn't you follow this best practice? Why didn't you do this? And so, you know, understanding how you will deal with it. But ultimately, you know, 
don't forget there are technical parts of this. How are how are you going to have backups? And backups really where I want you to put your emphasis on ransomware. Yeah. You know, don't don't be able to not recover. That was some really good English. So, <laughs> you know, so if if you have backups, if you're back, if you've practiced your backups and you can recover, there's a difference between learning losing a day or a week of data and not being able to recover for two weeks. And so I think that's where you need to say, where is our risk tolerance? And and it is hard to get people to do backups, you know. We we've we have an easier ability to do it in the cloud, maybe. Uh, it's definitely easier to surge in the cloud, um, but you have to practice it. You have to make sure it's realistic. And, and that's where I would put most of my emphasis. But today we're talking about compliance. And on that compliance right. side, again, it's a process we should focus on. And we'll, just one last thing, also make sure that the backups work. I can't, I've, I've been in environments where you have a backup program and then when you actually need it, turns out that the backups have been failing for the last two months. And that's that's a tough my, my wife was working at a company and, and we were in a discussion and she goes, oh yeah, well, we run backups. They, they take about five seconds to run. And I'm like, mm. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have backups. Yeah. I don't know what's going on, but it's, it's not a full backup. <laughs> um, something else that's kind of interesting that we're starting to see as far as a trend is laws that are starting to focus on uh, the CISO position uh, and, and, and starting to see maybe maybe it's not the laws themselves that are new, but maybe the, how it's being refocused um, where we're, we're seeing more liability, um, I don't want to say concerns, but more, more of a focus on pursuing liability at the CISO level. Can you talk more about that um, and probably clarify, clarify how I really, you know, mangled that question? <laughs> So, you know, the laws have been around for a long time. Uh, earlier, we talked about ransomware payment. There are some international and federal laws that could be interpreted to make paying a ransomware illegal, but no one's enforcing those. No one's, you know, called any any company out to date and say you've broken the law. And so this, you know, here we're going to talk about a couple of examples where laws have suddenly been enforced in in ways we haven't seen before. So the first was a, a CISO um, was called out in a criminal court case and eventually found guilty, liable, uh, was given probation. Another much more recent example was a software company. The SCC came in and filed against the company and by name, the CISO. And here's a couple cases where, you know, the, the C has been executed like a C. What do I mean? So to be a CXO, a chief executive officer, a director on the board of directors, um, the CFO, these are titles that have fiduciary responsibility. And so they can write a contract and the company, when they sign it, is liable, period. They, that's an enforceable contract. 
if you wrote a contract in the CISO or the chief data officer or the chief customer officer, or there are so many chief titles out there now, signed it, it's not an enforceable contract. And so now the CISOs are being held liable to a chief title, but but this is kind of new ground where most CISOs don't necessarily have an agreement that protects them the way we would traditionally think about this. And so, you know, if, if you're a director, you would have a director or an officer uh, insurance. You would have professional liability insurance from errors and admissions. You would have organizational cybersecurity liability insurance that the company is going to pay for your legal defense. Um, you know, fiduciary liability insurance. So you're not personally held liable for the for this. And so the question is, as a CISO, which one of these will happen? You know, do do you believe the company will provide for your defense? If you believe that, do you have it in writing? Um, and so I think this is kind of a new area where a lot of CISOs are, are thinking, what is my liability? And may need to understand what their current leadership has and then be able to make sure they have something similar. Yeah. Um, to kind of close this out, one of the things that I like to do when I'm when I'm socializing with security thought leaders uh, is kind of pick the brains on on how they're getting their information. What are the what are the podcasts? What are the books they read? Uh, what are the articles they read? So I thought it might be useful for our audience to to find out. You know, what would you recommend, or, and and what are some of the ways that you learn or keep up to date about security news? A huge fan of books. Uh, I was a member of the the Cyber Canon Committee, which is a a group that puts out summaries of books on cybersecurity. Uh, every year, they they elect the the top books of the year, um, you know. And so, if you go out to Cybersecurity Canon, um, you'll find a great list of books with recommendations, broken out by categories and and summaries. Uh, you'll see a couple of my old book reports of what's in the book and what you would get out of it. I love podcasts when you're driving. Everything from Darknet Diaries, which is just stories about hackers and maybe interviews of a hacker, all the way to CyberWire and their CSO perspectives, uh, which is much more of a strategic view. For, for constant news, I think you can tailor your news feed. You know, I have um, Hacker. I have Cyber News. I obviously have Akamai. So I'm, I'm getting news about things I care about fed in there. Um, I'm a, I like the Internet uh, Crime Complaint Center more of as a reference than real time. Uh, I publish articles on security with Security Boulevards. I know some of uh, my peers here do it on Dark Reading. I think both of those are great sites. For email, I like uh, Wired. Um, you know, and, and I, I get Wired. I go to their website. It's great. Uh, I'm on Krebs Distro, Bruce Schneier. Both of them have great email summaries, great insights. And obviously, I like Akamai, our research hub, our blogs. I think there's a lot of great information there. Yeah. And obviously, this this particular podcast um, that, we're, that we're participating in. Um, obviously. Obviously. 
Um, and there's definitely uh, ways you can uh, do things like advanced Google searches that will give you, you know, keyword searches that will kind of help you with that as well. Well, I think that kind of wraps up uh, the conversation today. Steve, as always, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, thank you for, for, for having me and, 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 and uh, doing this with me today. Obviously. We'll see who gets to drive next time. But, uh, it was a great discussion. And, and thanks, everybody, for joining us. Yes, thank you. Thank you for tuning into And Security for All. Be sure to join your host, Kim Hakem, for another episode of the show next Friday at noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Business Channel. And don't forget, you can follow Kim on LinkedIn by searching for Kim Hakem. That's Kim, H-A-K-I-M, to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events. Are you a cybersecurity professional that needs to earn continuing educational hours? FutureCon Events brings high-level cybersecurity training discovering cutting-edge security approaches, managing risk in the ever-changing threat of the cybersecurity workforce. Cybersecurity is no longer just an IT problem. To learn more about attending a virtual event, go to futureconevents.com or email info at futureconevents.com. Or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at FutureConHQ. Don't miss the weekly FutureCon seamless podcast series focusing on the insights and thoughts of chief security officers and industry pioneers making a difference throughout the world. Kim Hakem, CEO of FutureCon Events, and Darren Anderson, CEO and co-founder Next Robotics, host seamless podcast started by a team of entrepreneurs with experience in fields like smart cities, technology, cybersecurity. The result is a series of podcasts unlike anything you've ever heard anywhere. Listen where you get your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher.